Now, today we have Dr. Joe Azamoa, one of the most famous guests on the Bigger Pockets podcast. When he talked about his Section 8 strategy using the Burr strategy in a very expensive market like Washington, D.C. So, today, this is an honor because I learned a ton from Dr. Joe Azamoa, where we're going to show you how to identify outsized opportunities in expensive markets, like this moment when he shared with us just exactly how much rent he's collecting in Washington, D.C. for his properties. So four bedrooms, typically it's uh, four four 4,700 uh, for a four bedroom. Uh, five bedrooms is 5,400. Uh, six bedrooms is 6,200. <laughs> Whoa, 6,200. That's why I told you you would believe me. <laughs> the rent is uh, 5,462. Uh, the tenant's portion is $159. Say that one more time, just so the people tenant, catch that. The tenant's portion of the 5462 rent is $159, which means that every month, just keep it round numbers, I'm getting $5,300 from the housing authority, okay, and $159 from the tenant. Wow. So whether the tenant pays me or not is almost irrelevant because that $5,300 is going to hit my account every month, come what may. As long as that tenant's in that house, I'm getting that 5300 bucks. And we're going to uncover gems like this one on how to screen for the best tier one tenants for your rentals. The other thing which I do, which a lot of people don't do, is I go to the person's home uh, to see how they keep their, how they keep their home today. Uh, because what I found is how they keep their house today is how your house is going to be in three months. Now, this is just a tiny example of the value and tips you'll get out of today's conversation with Dr. Joe. Uh, we're going to help you come up with a plan from determining the market, identifying the opportunities, building your team, running your real estate portfolio like a business, and learning how to screen for the best tenants so you can survive until the point where you might or consider selling your properties. Now, this conversation was full of tactical advice, but we also had real numbers from a deal that Dr. Joe was able to share from a deal he just completed within the last year, even when interest rates were rising like crazy. So there are still deals out there and I can't wait for you to get into the conversation. So let's get into it. Okay. Welcome to another episode of affordable housing and real estate investing today. Man, I am really, really excited for this conversation, guys, because Dr. Joe was one of my first mentors and I first listened to him on a Bigger Pockets podcast. So this is almost like a dream come true to have your mentor willing to come on to your podcast about affordable housing when he was the one that inspired everything about affordable housing for me. So Dr. Joe, welcome to the show, man. And just for the people that don't know much about you, could you just tell a little bit of, about yourself to the audience? Introduce yourself sure. really quick. Sure. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me, Kent. This is uh, an honor and uh, a privilege. And uh, I look forward to, you know, uh, hopefully providing quality content to your audience. And so a little bit more about myself. Uh, my name is Joe Asamoah, and some people call me Dr. Joe. Uh, I was born in Ghana, and when I was five years old, my parents moved to England. Uh, so I lived in England uh, for a while. Then I came, uh, after graduation, I came, to, I got a transfer of my job to the U.S., uh, ever since I came here, I loved it. <laughs> and, uh, I bought my first house, um, about a year or two after I arrived here many years ago. And what happened was that the boss I was working with, uh, he was fired and, uh, he gave me some words of wisdom. He says, Joe, this could happen to you. 
uh, he didn't do anything wrong. It's just it was a reorganization. And, uh, and so he suggested look into real estate. Uh, but whatever you do, make sure you keep the houses, don't sell them. And uh, this guy had like 10 houses. And I just couldn't fathom how anybody could have more than one house. It's like, who does this? <laughs> uh, anyway, I, uh, I bought my first house. It was a complete disaster. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Uh, I can talk about that if you like. And uh, ultimately, I, I turned it around. I bought another one, bought another one, just kept on going until uh, June the 6th, 2003. And uh, when my income for my rental properties equaled uh, what I was making in my job. And so I was able to transition from uh, a full-time corporate world into the full-time real estate investor. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it seems like you have achieved the goal that a lot of investors are looking for, right? It's always like, hey, how do I quit my job? How do I quit my job? But I think you showed a really good example of how you don't need to quit your job right away. Your job is almost like a superpower that you can continue to use to build your your leverage capabilities and continue to refinance and use your credit to your best of your ability. So June 2003, you got your financial freedom. What was that like, Dr. Joe? Like, Did you feel like liberated? Or were you like, hey, this is it? Like, send an email. I'm out of here. Like, how, how did you feel? Because I really want the listeners to think about that day of like the emotions that you felt and have like a target or 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 bullseye to kind of march towards too sure yeah i mean it was a it was a, a milestone i was i've always aimed for i mean i had a i have a wife i have a family and i mean you know so i couldn't just tell my boss to go to hell you know too early <laughs> 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 and she would be too happy about it you know? <laughs> so it was something which uh you know it was always been a, a goal a dream uh an aspiration a milestone whatever you want to call it based on that conversation uh with that my boss who got fired i always wanted to have a plan b i mean you know at that time i was making fifty dollars hundred dollars two hundred dollars a month on on, on cash flow so you can't quit your job but you know if you're making hundred dollars cash flow it's not realistic and, and so, but I knew that in order, in order to get mortgages and loans, I needed the job. And, and therefore the job was a means to an end, if that's, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I, I did very well on my job. I was worked very, very hard. You know, I, you know, I, I liked what I did. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, so it was, but it was important for me to keep my job. And so you have to perform like everywhere else you have to deliver. Uh, but also I realized that it was a means to an end. It wasn't the end. And uh, I, I, I was doing real estate investing. You know, I was doing it under the radar. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't you know, tell the world. I was just doing it. And, uh, and, and so when I was able to transition out, people were shocked um, because they didn't know, what I, you know, how, you know, <laughs> I had these houses. You know, I didn't advertise to anybody. I just did it. Uh, and therefore I, I felt... Uh, you know, because I did a lot of travel and after a while, you know, travel was, it, it, you know, the novelty wears off. Uh, it's not as glamorous what people think it is uh, and so on. So I wanted to transition out of that because I want to spend more time at home, more time with the family. But, but in order to do that though, Kent, <clears throat> you got to have certain systems in place. You know, I realized that I needed to run this as a business. I had to have certain things, uh, certain business principles in place. You know, we can talk about what that means. Yeah. So it was a journey. It wasn't something where I just woke up one day and said, I want to, you know, 
tell my boss, you know, what I think of him and I'm out of here. It, it wasn't that at all. It was a, a calculated strategy, a calculated plan. It took many, many years to get there, but I, I had a target. I had goals and I was striving for them. And I was very, very uh, persistent uh, despite the ups and downs that we all go through on this journey. But uh, once I reached there, it was great. You know, I mean, I, I'm not saying that the, all the problems stopped. <laughs> yeah, we still have I still have challenges today, you know, but I have more control over my time, which is what I was really striving for. Yeah, I think that's such a great reminder of people. Make sure you're setting your goals, setting your targets, and then ultimately marching towards our target one step by one step. And I remember I used to be in consulting as well. So that's why I really related to your story where I was traveling to the middle of nowhere and I was just learning how to not run businesses. So I really like how you hinted at you got to have the underlying business systems in place so you can be successful here. Now, maybe if we think about how do the listeners devise a plan to start on their journey, one of the things that most people need to really figure out is what's their strategy. And I know you kind of decide on Section 8, a combination with the birth strategy, which is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. Did you start off with that strategy right away? Tell us a little bit more about how did you decide on Section 8 and how did you decide on the Burr strategy? Okay. Uh, first of all, I was doing Burr before Burr was invented. So <laughs> <laughs> You should have wrote that book. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I was doing Burr in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> At that time, it was cool. How do I buy a house where I can get all, the, all my money back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, I, I, the conversation I had with my boss was, Whatever you do, Joe, make sure you don't sell the houses. Okay, that was the words of wisdom he told me. Uh, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. So Washington, D.C. area, historically, has been what we call an appreciating market. Uh, so over time, historically, prices tend to go up. Uh, yes, it goes through cycles, but generally it goes up. So there's, in fact, there's never been a seven-year period ever where prices have gone down. Uh, and so uh, I knew, and having lived in London, having traveled uh, international, I knew there was something uh, unique about capital cities, first of all. But I knew that, you know, those appreciating markets, for the same, for the most part, they tend to play out wherever you are. Uh, you go through ups and downs, but the trends are usually up. Uh, I mean, the first house I bought, believe it or not, was $49,000 in Washington, D.C. Now, at the time, People were telling me I was getting ripped off. I was paying too much. <laughs> so fast forward, what, 10 years after that, prices were 140000 for that area. Man, no way. That's too much. You're getting ripped off. You're getting duped. No, you're paying too much. Okay. So fast forward another 10 years. Yeah, it's now 350000 No way. <laughs> too much. Too much. Yeah, fast forward today, 750000 Oh, no way. It's too much. Okay. So... The, the moral of the story is that it's always expensive. You know, it's always, it doesn't matter. It's always expensive. And, but five, 10 years from now, you'll be thinking, what a genius I was buying it 10 years earlier. Uh, I wish I bought more when it was quote unquote cheap. <laughs> so that's just usually how it plays out in these appreciating markets. So it really doesn't matter. The issue is how do you get in and how do you survive that delta between now and then? Okay. And uh, so how do you buy houses, these ridiculous prices and still be able to hold on to it? 
So that way you can realize the beauty of, of real estate, the power of real estate, the cash flow, the, the appreciation, the leverage, the equity bill. I mean, you can only do that if you hold on to this thing for you know, during that delta. And this is where the rubber hits the road. It sounds good. You buy it today, five years, 10 years from now, you sell it, you know, you cash out and make all this money. The issue is, what do you do between now and then? How do you survive between now and then? How do you avoid getting a tenant from hell who will drive you crazy and, and force you to want to get rid of this thing because you can't take it anymore? <laughs> okay. How, how do you avoid all that? And that's, that's the issue. And that's really where running this act of business comes into play. So I realized I wanted to hold on to these houses. I didn't want to sell them. I didn't want to do a lot of flicks and flips. I've done some fix and flips, but I didn't want to pursue that. I wanted to hold on to these houses for the long term. And then I realized, well, okay, then I've got to have good tenants in order to survive. Tenants that pay me, tenants that take care of the property, tenants that uh, are pleasant to deal with, and tenants that are going to stay a long time. And if you don't believe me, you spend a day down at landlord tenant court, you know? And, and so I realized I need, you know, the key is making sure you can attract, you can appeal, you can manage. Uh, these tenants and they're, they're happy so they stay a long time and that's that's the other part of this whole equation which i can talk about if you like to yeah and i think that's super super cool because now you have your goal well defined and obviously you want to keep recycling the cash with the burr strategy did you start off in section eight right away dr joe or did you have market rate tenants tell us a little bit about the background there and what yeah. your strategy initially was yeah, I mean, originally, I mean, I mean, I heard of Section Eight. I, I, you know, all the all the stereotypical stuff. You know, they're going to trash your house, chaos, drama. You know, you know, you collect your rent with a bulletproof vest on. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not careful, you get shot at. You know, <laughs> yeah, all, all that stuff. So, uh, you yeah, know, obviously, I didn't know, so I believed it until one day this voucher holder came to one of my houses. I used to live at this house. Uh, I moved out. We moved out, my, you know, and moved to another part. So I decided to rent it. I, you know, I didn't want to sell it. I said, and so I put it out for rent. And this lady came. I never forget the story. She came in. She, uh, she had a voucher. You know, she had a net worth of zero. Okay, and she said to me, "Well, how come you don't have a hot jacuzzi? You know, why don't you have hardwood floors here? You know, <laughs> where are you still?" Stainless steel appliances. Yeah, she she looked she looking me in the eye and telling me this. And I'm saying, what the hell is going on? <laughs> lady with a net worth of zero, <laughs> telling me that the house I lived in wasn't worthy of her. <laughs> okay, I, I was totally confused because this didn't fit, fit the stereotypical view of a you know of, of a section eight tenant. And uh, and what was going on was that there was a recession. You know, and the market, you know, was, was tanking where we were in D.C. And so you had all these flippers, you know, rehabbers who couldn't sell their homes. And so the only option is that I had to reduce the price or rent them. And so now I was competing against these rehab houses who had the jacuzzis, the, you know, the, the stainless steel appliances, the hardwood floors. And I didn't have any of that stuff. And so I realized that, hey, these folks have choices. And if I want to appeal to people like her, then I need to change my approach, okay, in terms of what I buy, where I buy, what I do to appeal to them. 
So I realized there's another group of Section 8 tenants, which, which I call Tier 1 tenants. Uh, and I took the time to understand these people. And uh, as I said before, who are these people? What do they want? Where do they want to live? Where do they don't want to live? Who do they want to rent to? Who do they don't want to rent to? I mean, I, I, I have a business and technology background, so I understand business. So uh, I said, who's this customer? Who are these people? Um, how do I segment them? You know, this, you know, uh, how do I do my stretch my business such that I can I can appeal to them, and so that's what I did, and that's what, that was the game changer for me, is realizing that hey, if I can appeal to these people, they're going to take care of my properties, they're going to be pleasant to deal with, you know, they're going to pay their rent, and uh, and they're going to stay a long long time. That's the key. A long long my longest tenant is twenty six years. And I regularly get 15, 10, 20 year tenants, regularly. Okay. And uh, so the question becomes if I'm going to survive between now and when I exit, I've got to attract people like those. Okay. Because if you can attract and appeal to people like that who will take care of your house, pay the rent, and all that kind of stuff, it's truly a joy to, to be a housing provider because you're making a huge difference in people's lives. And, uh, you know, in, in where we are in Washington, these is a huge gentrification going on. And neighborhoods that a few years ago, you say, who the hell want to live there? Now you can't get in there. It's too expensive. Uh, it's wow. gone, you know? And, uh, and so these folks are being displaced. And so they're a casualty of gentrification. And, uh, and so what I do is I allow them to stay. So now they're a beneficiary of gentrification. You know, they can be in a nice house in a nice area. Their kids can go to a nice schools and they can do all those things, which ordinarily they wouldn't have the opportunity. So I kind of answer your question. I think in a long winded way, I, I prefer the section eight program because the rents here are, are high. Uh, if I rent to market renters, and we're talking about rents of three, four, five, six thousand $6,000 a month. Okay. Around here. Market wow. renters aren't going to be paying three, four, five, six thousand dollars a month for too long. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point, they're going to say, "This is crazy. Let's go buy our own house." Whereas for a voucher holder, they're not going to buy the house. It's not going to happen, and so they're looking for a different thing. They're looking for a, a, a good area where the kids are safe, the good landlord to rent from, and you know, so they're looking for a different perspective. And they're not paying all the rent. They're only paying maybe three or four, five hundred bucks, and so they would love to stay 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Whereas a market renter, it's, it's, not, it's unlikely that that's going to happen. Yeah, and, and Dr. Joe, I think I just want to take a moment to, to really say like this is the impact that you can have on a family. Um, the story, I'm not sure if I shared this with you, Dr. Joe, was like, you know, my parents came over with $1,000 in their pocket and my mom's first job, she made like $3 an hour. Now, one night, they had $5,000 of cash out because they were getting ready to take this home back to China to repay some of the relatives to thank them from getting over here. But that night, someone climbed to the second floor window and stole everything from them. And for them, that was rock bottom because they didn't know English. They just came over from China. They worked $3 an hour and they lost their entire years of wages in one night. And the lesson I got from that 
is like, hey, bad things will happen. It doesn't matter what is, but how you respond to it. But obviously, she had hope. And that hope came from being on a wait list for affordable housing. Mm-hmm. She waited about three and a half, four years back then. Um, but when I left affordable housing, it was about seven-year wait list. And one of my, my parents are still in that apartment today, to be quite honest mm-hmm. with you. But they're in an area where, like you said, has been gentrified. And there are condos being sold just like three blocks from that home for almost like $800,000 and a million dollars. Mm-hmm. And she would have never been able to stay in that area in Chinatown where she gets easy access to walk to grocery stores had she not ever been afforded that apartment unit for us to kind of grow up and say, well, so first of all, thank you for what you do. Because without people like you, I would have never had the home growing up. So thank you so much, Dr. Joe. Like, again, this is a really, really, truly dream come true for having you on a podcast. And I think you covered a lot of things, right? You you came up with a strategy and you talked about why it's beneficial for keeping and attracting the best of the best tenants. It's people just like my mom who are going to take good care of your units. And at the same time, they're going to be there for a very long time, keep your vacancy expenses low. Now, for folks now that are thinking like, okay, I'm sold. I understand the impact of what I can do with this housing strategy and I can keep my expenses low. How do people figure out how much can they charge for rent? Because I really want to spend this podcast maybe just helping folks listening right now to lay out a plan for how they're going to get involved in affordable housing. How do people figure out how much rent they can charge and what can they get by bedroom count? Sure, yeah. I think... uh uh, there's there's two parts to that question. One is uh, the location is key. Obviously, uh, you know, in terms of Section Eight, I mean, there's lots of affordable housing programs. Section Eight, it technically is called the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Um, you know, it's a federal program. So wherever you are in the U.S., there's a housing authority that has jurisdiction over where that property is. So uh, the best thing to do is to find the local housing authority, they call it PHA, public housing authority in your area. And, and you can speak to them. And, uh, well, first of all, they'll tell you how they determine rents because uh, depending on the, the jurisdiction, sometimes rents are determined by zip code and sometimes rents are determined by other means, like it could be neighborhoods. It could be lots of different ways, but you need to find out how they determine their rents. That's the more one. Number two is, okay, the rent that you'll get will depend on the number of bedrooms in the house. So I can have one house. You and I can buy the same house. And uh, let's say it's a three-bedroom house. You decide to keep it as a three-bedroom. And I decide to make it into a four-bedroom. It's the same house. As long as I that, that fourth bedroom is a as a legal bedroom, and we can talk about what that means, then technically I can get more rent now because it's a four-bedroom house, whereas you can only get three. It's the same house, we got two different rents, which means that we could get two different cash flows because I'm getting more rent than you. You may be breaking even, I could be cash flowing. Or you could be negative, I could be break even. So, you know, so one of the things which I realized is that, okay, I, if I want to get more rent, if I want to get cash flow, I've got to increase the number of bedrooms. And uh, sometimes that's not possible, but sometimes it is. But if you, go, if you understand what a legal bedroom is, the criteria for it, then as you go shopping, looking at deals, then you can say, well, okay, how, how can I add another extra bedroom? To it. So, you know, one investor 
is saying one thing. You're looking at a house completely different. You're looking at this house to say, well, how can I get more bedrooms so I can get more rent so I can get cash flow? Okay. Whereas a non-Section 8 oriented landlord is not doing that. They're just looking at this as a house as, it, as the way it is and so on. So it's a mindset shift in the sense of what you're looking for. And then you can then contact your local housing authority. Usually they publish the rents um, either on the website or, you know, depending on your relationships with them. You can find out. So a three-bedroom house may rent for one number in, let's say, zip code A, but rent for a different number, a three-bedroom, in zip code B, uh, and a different rent in zip code C, and so forth. So therefore, when you understand, if you take the time to understand that, that will guide you, hopefully, in terms of what you buy and where you buy it and the chances of getting cash flow or no cash flow. It's not a random thing. In other words, if you take the time to understand the system, you can, you could be a lot more strategic and you can get to where you want to go in terms of your real estate journey a lot faster rather than somebody else who just doesn't know is just randomly picking a house here and there just because it's got a, because it's a quote unquote good deal you know uh whatever it says <laughs> yeah. yeah and i think that's and i think this is such super valuable advice because i literally took what you said dr joe and i went about it and i said hey what are my fair market rents for a certain zip code and what does my average sales price look like in that neighborhood and if i am able to see all these three bedrooms with these lofts or garages or these basements and can i convert them to additional uh, bedroom, higher bedroom count properties, do I get more rent? And I think for the listeners right now, if you just go to your local housing there, which is exactly what I did, I asked them, how did they calculate rents? Does it include utilities or not include utilities? Because every city and county will be different. And then I also took a tip from Dr. Joe and I said, hey, how long is your wait list for your affordable housing, your housing choice vouchers? Mm -hmm. And the San Diego County told me it was 12 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. Wild. 12 <laughs> to 15 years. And then I took Dr. Joe's strategy and said, hey, in this particular zip code, a five-bedroom property will rent for about $6,000 according to, to the FMRs. And I was like, whoa, this might work if I find a property like this. Now, obviously, the purchase price at that point were a little bit too expensive, but now they've come back down. And now you start thinking like, well, I've underwrote a property every single day. And I knew that eventually, if I, the properties ever fall to this price, it might work to meet my cash and cash return criteria. But it's your own criteria. It's your own risk tolerance. Yeah. And this is the steps that Dr. Joe is laying out for you that I have learned from him on how do you actually just determine a market? Because I get DMs now all the time. I'm sure you do get Dr. Joe's like, hey, what market is the best? Like they want like a magic bullet. I'm sure you get that all the time. Yeah. Um, right. But let's talk a little bit about your market. What is a like four or five or six bedroom property rent out for Washington right now? Well, I know you wouldn't believe me, so... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I typically would buy a three-bedroom house because that's how they normally are in this area. And, and I try to add more bedrooms. When I first started, you could cash flow with three bedrooms. The rents that you were getting from the housing authority and what you were paying for would just about break even or get a little cash flow. Then prices started going up. And, and so you couldn't cash flow anymore with three bedrooms. You had to get more. So I, I then up to four bedrooms. So I would cash flow now on four bedrooms and then prices went up. And so four bedrooms didn't make it anymore. <laughs> so I went to five <laughs> bedrooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could cash flow on five and break even on four. 
and now it's getting to the way the market is so crazy that you know even five bedrooms you you can break just barely break even now you gotta go to six bedrooms so yeah it's, it's crazy anyway so four bedrooms typically it's uh four four thousand seven hundred uh for four bedroom uh five bedrooms is five thousand four hundred <laughs> uh six bedrooms is six thousand two hundred <laughs> whoa six thousand two hundred i told you would believe me i did but I think that's where most people get a little mind blown because when they hear about these numbers, Dr. Joe, they say, whoa, who's going to pay $6,000 rent? How on earth can they possibly afford something like that? And then you have to educate them on what the housing choice voucher is and how the government is going to pay on time every single month. Because, well, if they don't, then we have a whole different type of problem on our hands <laughs> um, that we, we right. can't really contemplate. But that's really interesting. So up to $6,000 for a six-bedroom property. Well, let's talk about what 6, makes it a bedroom. 6,281. <laughs> Maybe this is a good time for us to talk about, well, what constitutes as a legal bedroom, Dr. Joe? Is it permits? Is it closets? Sure. Can you help us explain what the inspector or the housing authority is looking for? Does it have to be permitted and sure. in the tax records to count as a bedroom? Or does it simply have to be framed and meet some criteria educate us a little bit on what makes it a legal bedroom right yeah now it depends obviously to a certain extent on where you live like i know in florida it's hard to you don't have too many houses with basements um you know where we are in the dc area you know uh, typically a lot of the houses have basements oh, i only buy houses with basements and uh and that's usually the area where i can get the most flexibility uh, because many times basements are just rec rooms. And so I can I look at basements as potential bedroom opportunity. Okay. So uh, a legal bedroom has to have meet four or five criteria. It's got to have at least 70 square feet of living space at minimum. Uh, not 69, uh, minimum 70. That's number one. Two it's got to have a certain legal height. Okay. The, the bedroom has to have a height. So it's got to have a minimum of six foot 10. Okay. So if your ceiling height from the ground to the ceiling is six foot five, that may not count as a bedroom. Okay. So you're going to have to dig down in order to get the height. Okay. Three, it's got to have a closet. You can also have a place where you got to store the, 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 the you know, the clothes. So it's got to have like a, a closet, inbuilt closet or wardrobe. Four, it's got to have at least one outlet, preferably two or more outlets. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different, I mean, it depends how you, it, uh, five, it's got to have what we call egress, two forms of egress. What that means is that in the event of an emergency, people have to be able to escape in, by two ways. Usually one is through the way that they get, came into the room through a door. And the second is usually through a window uh, if there's no direct door to the exterior. So uh, you got to have what we call an egress window. And there are legal, there are, there are requirements of a legal, of an egress window. You can't have those small little windows because somebody has to be able to get out in the event of an emergency. So if it's too small, it wouldn't pass, uh, you know, code and it wouldn't pass what they call housing quality standards, which is what hate, uh, Section 8 users or HUD users for their guidelines. So these are some of the, the requirements of a legal bedroom. The big ones are 70 square feet, 
six foot ten height, two forms of egress. Uh, you got to have light. You can't go through one bedroom to go to another bedroom. So it's got to be privacy. So you can't have a, in order to get to bedroom B, you have to go through bedroom one. A. that won't bedroom. They wouldn't allow bedroom B because you can't go to it unless you go through bedroom A. So once you know that and you understand that, that guides you when you are looking. It guides you in your screening criteria, criteria, what, what properties are of interest. So I only, if, if a house doesn't have a basement, I'm not interested. Okay. If a house doesn't have a certain square footage in terms of the size, I'm not interested because I can't get extra room. I can't make bedrooms because the house is too small. You see what I'm saying? And so I can pass that information to uh, wholesalers and real estate agents so they can feed me with leads that meet my criteria. And I think this is just so genius on your part, Dr. Jones, like, you know what you're looking for. And now you can disseminate specific criteria to your yeah. team that are looking for deals for you. And that's how you create clones of yourself to go look for these deals so that you're not kind of bogged down by simply what I call window shopping on Zillow or Redfin every single day. You know what you're looking for and people know what you're looking for. So now they can help you and actually look for the deals that you're looking for specifically. Now, we just talked a lot about what a bedroom consists of. Are you always getting permits for your rentals and getting the inspector in there beforehand? Uh, I just want to make sure people understand like, hey, this can't be a very lengthy process. You have to do drawings sometimes. You have to do uh, we have to pull permits to qualify this as a new four, five, or six bedroom home. If you're, especially if you're converting from a three bedroom home, are you pulling permits all the time, Doctor Joe, for these renovations? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good. Yeah, no, no, I pull permits. No, I, I mean when I first started out, I, I, I'll just be honest, I wasn't. Uh, I just, you know, did what he had to. You did what you had to do. You know, you tell the contractors to, to keep a low, you know, to keep quiet, and you know, make sure you don't take off the neighbors, you know, so they'll call you in. You know? uh, but nowadays, no, it's not, it's not worth it because you can get stop work orders on you. You can get fined and so on. So yeah, we, I always pull, I mean, I've, I always pull permits on these houses uh, because uh, well, first of all, you know, you should. And, uh, and permits is not that bad. If you've got contractors who know what they're doing, they know code. Uh, they know how to run electrical. They know how to what the codes are for plumbing. They know what the codes are for certain things. So they're not afraid of inspectors, you know, because they you know they they know their trade. Uh, and so uh, most inspectors are pretty reasonable. And uh, and so as long as you have contractors who know what they're doing, inspection is not a bad thing. Now the permit process can take longer because you know depending on what jurisdiction you're in. Uh, but you know, I have a architects who I use, they know how to navigate that, uh, you know, that building permit process. And so I can get the permits, you know, a lot faster than say, if I had a, if I didn't know what I was doing, uh, they know what the architects, they know what the permit officers are looking for in terms of what's in, what should be in the drawings and what should not be in the drawings. So they already know, and therefore they include all that stuff in the drawings in the first place. Uh, and therefore it, it, you know, therefore you can, when they, when the reviewer looks at it, you know, uh, there's a better, better chance of it being approved rather than being rejected for whatever reason.
And I think this gets into the next question, Dr. Joe, where how do you find these architects or how do you find these contractors? Because I think for newer investors out there, and you coach a ton of students, they probably have this fear of how do I make sure I don't get the runaround from a contractor? How do I make sure they're not scamming me or overcharging me? Uh, you mentioned architects and contractors. Do you recommend like looking up building permits by architects and then maybe you can engage the architect and then maybe the architect will refer you to a contractor they worked with? What sort of tactical advice do you have for people that are trying to build out their team to execute on this strategy? Right, I would suggest that one of the things, a good way would be to go to a local RIA, uh, Real Estate Investment Association. There should be one everywhere um, you know, where your audience lives. If you don't know, you can do a search on REIA uh, or go to Bigger Pockets and you know, or go to some of these other forums uh, and find out where your local uh, real estate investment association meetings are. There's usually two or three uh, around. So I would go to those meetings and at those meetings, you tend to find other investors there, uh, other reno you know, rehabbers there, other, you know, buy and hold investors there. So they, um, you know, if you can network or if you don't know anybody there, speak to the organizer and the organizer will say, okay, you're going to, you need to speak to this person because he's, he or she is doing stuff or he or she will help you out. And, uh, mm. and so on. So if you speak to those folks, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're, um, you know, respectful, you know, most people will share with you, Hey, uh, you know, I've got a great architect. I've got a great, this, I've got a great, that, you know, here's his number, uh, give him a call and let him know that I referred you. So if you don't have a team, the fast, the best way, in my opinion, is to leverage on somebody else's team. You know, rather than randomly, you know, crossing your fingers and hopefully, you know, you're not going to get scammed by this guy. You know, <laughs> you know, or go to the Home Depot parking lot and ask guys on, the, you know, in the parking lot, hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, for the best. Uh, yeah right right yeah <laughs> you know so uh i would leverage on other people experienced people uh you can go to the home depot and go to the pro desk uh you can speak to the pro desk people they know who the players are who who's hard working you can go to the home depot maybe six or seven o'clock in the morning uh people who go at six o'clock seven o'clock in the morning are serious and uh in terms of contractors and so, so you can uh, develop a, a network uh, by speaking to people in your area who are a bit more seasoned, a bit more experienced than you are, and try to build on their uh, their relationships. Yeah, I think that's great advice, Dr. Joe, because I think when I was new, I was trying to think about like, well, do I need to go to Home Depot and do this? But I think what I realized is like everyone, you have to figure out what your way is to providing value. One thing I learned was like, hey, I was really good at Excel. So I volunteered my time helping other investors analyze their deals and, and calculate what their returns are. And right. if you're a real estate investor, you're just starting right now, it takes, a, it takes like 30 minutes to look at a deal really in depth right. to make sure if it works. And right. if you're helping someone save 30 minutes a day for every single deal that might be coming across the table, now all of a sudden they're like, oh, this person's really serious yeah. about providing yes. value to my life. Yeah. I am willing to help him out because he's also helping me out. But yes. you... I did it without any expectation of return. And I think that's probably what kind of stood out. It's like, hey, one, I get to learn. Two, I get to create a new friend. And three, best case scenario, they might share some of their resources with me that they've had experiences with. Yes. So yes. I think for people listening right now, just find your own way of providing value to someone. Um, 
like another way I did it was I helped people come on this podcast, create content for their Instagram pages and for their content pages. And look, Dr. Joe's a really, really busy guy. And I'm so blessed that he's come on, but I need to figure out how to provide value back to him and make it mutually beneficial for everybody. So again, I can't thank you enough for coming on here, Dr. Joe, and sharing all these nuggets of wisdom because man, these are such important tactical steps that sometimes people just leave out on some podcast interviews because they don't give enough people enough direction right. to to take action on it. So I really love all the nuggets that you're sharing right here, Dr. Joe. Oh, I mean, I could spend a whole day talking about nuggets, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I don't have enough time. But uh, one of the biggest nuggets, though, um, you know, it's kind of... Here's the problem that... It's kind of contra con contrarian. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what we want to do is to hold on to these properties uh for you know a, a period of time where we, we can hopefully um you know uh get a good return on them so uh, uh, you know in order to get cash flow there are two sides to the ledger there's the income side and there's the expense side so most investors you know uh it, it's all about how do i jack up the rent so i can get more cash flow Okay, so they're focused on the income side of the ledger. And that's okay. But the problem is they avoid the expense side. And the expense side, and the biggest expense side is turnover. Whenever somebody leaves your house, you know, if you, if you know, people are hopefully, I think any landlord will tell you, uh, whenever somebody leaves your house, it is expensive. <laughs> You know, you got to paint the house again. You got to clean the house again. You got you got no income coming in. You still got to pay the mortgage. You know, you got to go out and find somebody else. You got to show the house. You got to all that stuff. Okay. And my take is that every turnover is going to cost you at least, if you're really really lucky, one month's rent. Realistically, it's going to cost you two to three months' rent. Okay. So if your rent is two thousand bucks, let's just say. Uh, I mean, which is completely unrealistic where we are. Uh, let's just say it's 3000 bucks a month, okay, the rent. Every time you have a turnover, minimum is going to cost you 3000 bucks. Realistically, it's going to cost you six to $9,000 after all is said and done, okay? After all is said and done, it's going to cost you six to 9000 bucks. If you don't believe me, you speak to any landlord, they'll tell you. Now, let's just keep it at 6000 bucks. Uh, how, if you increase the rent by a hundred bucks, how long will it take to recoup that 6,000? Okay. A long, long time. So my thing is that if I can avoid that turnover, that $6,000 stays in my pocket. Okay. And if you don't, it goes out. So you're fooling yourself. You're thinking that I'm making all this cash flow. Uh, because the, you know, the calculator said that, you know, because the, you know, the spreadsheet said this when in reality, because you're not control controlling your, uh, your turnover cost, you're, you're, you're not making any money. In fact, you're losing money. <clears throat> and, uh, and so that was, you know, you know, if, if there's a big, uh, nugget from this, uh, this uh, podcast 
it is that, okay? If you can't control your turnover costs, okay, you, you make no money. In fact, you're probably going to be driven out of this business uh, because it is so, so expensive whenever this, someone leaves. So that's the reason why I focused on what I do on getting Section 8 because these folks aren't leaving, okay? Uh, if the rent's 6000 5000 bucks, and they're paying 500 okay, uh, they're not going anywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. They've hit the jackpot. They know it. And, and so to them... Staying for 5, 10, 15, 20 years is a dream come true. Okay. Whereas for a market renter, there's no way they're going to be doing that. Uh, and so you're going to have that turnover with the market renter, which you wouldn't have with the voucher holder, especially a good voucher holder. And you've got a good house in a good area. And understanding that is what changed things. That was the game changer for me. Okay is that uh, I needed to have these people stay uh, because it's good for my bottom line. And therefore, the question becomes, how do you get them to stay? Okay? They're not going to stay because, they, because, I'm a night, you know, because I would like them to stay. They stay because for their own selfish reasons. They're happy there. Okay? Uh, you know, it's in their interest to stay. Okay? They want to stay. Uh, every Mother's Day, I send them bouquets of flowers. Every Christmas, we send them presents. Uh, you know, when the kids do well at school, I give them fifty dollar. You know, uh, you know, thank you for for being a good, you know, a, a good student. And uh, I know you won't believe it. I send my students on the students, my my tenants. We give them free vacations. Uh, so the idea is this: it's very simple. I'm in competition. Let's just say I'm in competition with you, Ken, uh, for these tier one tenants. I want them. You want them. Okay. We all want them. We don't want the tenant that just got evicted yesterday. Okay. Who trashed their house on the way out. Okay. We don't want yep. that. <laughs> Maybe you do. I don't want them. Anyway. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're trying to appeal to the same group of people, you and I. So why the, if you need to ask yourself, why should tenant A choose Kent over Joseph? Why? And if you can't answer that question, I'm saying you got a problem. Okay. And if you can't, once they're in the house, if you can't understand why they should stay, then you got a problem. Because if you're not careful, the first time you hear there's a problem is when you get a 30-day notice. And at that point, it's too late. They're gone. Okay? So this is the... I know it's more than one nugget, but this is some of the, uh, the, you know, the keys to success in, in this sort of uh, buy and hold burr uh, you know, uh, you know, business. And Dr. Joe, I think this is what well, some of the lessons that we have learned from our full-time jobs, like learning how to not run a business. Sometimes when you get so short-sighted in how you analyze the deals, I, I've seen so many deals where people just send me, this is the rent, this is the PITI. And I'm like, what about vacancy? You don't think they're ever going to move out? Come on. Uh, you don't think anything is ever going to get fixed? Come on. So all these things are, are what 
the listeners need to do is like take the extra 15, 30 minutes and really think out your strategy and think about how do you stand out? Dr. Joe just told us like, hey, you want the tier one tenants? So does everybody else. They all want them. Exactly. So how do you stand apart and attract the best of the best uh, to, to live in your property? Because I think sometimes people think like, oh, there's no houses out there. Wrong. The best of the best actually have a choice and they know that all landlords want the best of the best tenants because they're going to take care of their home. They they don't move out as often. So it keeps your bottom line low. But this was a great example. And I love that nugget. And that was one of the biggest things that jumped onto me when I first heard you speak, Dr. Joe. It's like, you got to keep the bottom line. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense. It does not pencil. And all of a sudden, when you're reaching into your own pocket to pay for your own mortgage, now all of a sudden, real estate investing doesn't sound so sexy and fun anymore. Right. And now you're like, how do I get out of it? Uh, but Dr. Joe just showed you exactly what you need to do to attract the best of the best and also run a profitable business. So you're taking care of your existing residents or tenants. And at the same time, you're making sure that they will stay with you a very, very long time. So it doesn't negatively affect your PL. So uh Dr. Joe, I want to get into like a deal deep dive because I think you shared a lot of conceptual items today, a lot of theories, a lot of tactical items. But could you walk the audience through a deal that you might have done recently or a year or two ago that you can share the purchase price, rehab, cash refunds? Because I think where people understand like, well, I want to attract the best tenant, what does that rehab actually cost me to attract the best of the best? Well, yeah, I mean uh, the caveat is this: I w- the kind of renovations I do, okay. Um, not everybody needs to do, okay. Uh, let me just say that. So I tend to do uh, top of the line rehabs. So I'm spending two hundred thousand dollars of our rehabs, <laughs> okay. So I'm not saying that's where you need to be. That's just where I am uh, because I-, I rather just do it now. Uh, when I bought the house, I've got great contractors and I'm going to keep this thing for 10, 15 years. So, um, you know, I'd rather do the, the major heavy lifting now because in 10, 15 years from now, it's going to be, it's going to be cost a lot more to do that heavy lifting, uh, and so on. So, and also if I do the heavy lifting now, I can appeal to the creme de la creme of the tenants and, and they're going to stay 15 years. (laughs) So I don't have to do it again you know, uh, and so on. So anyway, so that's the caveat. So let's just kind of run through some numbers. I mean, now it's getting kind of tight because interest rates are, you know, getting kind of crazy. And uh, also prices are, are, are kind of high. So I just walked through a, briefly about a house, which we did re- about a year ago. Um, it was a three bedroom, one bath when I bought it. Uh, we, we ended up paying uh, 500, 555000 for it, uh, which... In this area, that's a C neighborhood in DC. Uh, so, so it's half a million dollars, which is not really a big deal here. It's probably a C minus. Probably, yeah, it's a C. It's a C. Let's just say C. And uh, so we spent two hundred five thousand on the rehab. So we turned this thing. It was originally a three bedroom, one bath. We turned it into a five bedroom, four bath. Uh, five bedroom, three and a half bath. Okay, so we added two bedrooms in the basement. We added another bathroom in the basement. We put a powder room on the first floor. We created a master bedroom on the, on the second floor and, uh, and so on. So we turned a three one into a five, three and a half. Okay, so far? Mm-hmm. And that was about 205,000 on the renovation. This is a major renovation. We put new electrical, new plumbing. We got permits. 
building permit, electrical permit, plumbing permit, HV. We do all that stuff. What was the square uh, footage of this home originally? Uh, above grade, the, uh, the first and second is about, it wasn't that big, it's about 1,100 square feet above okay. grade. Right. Okay. Uh, now, it has a basement. So let's just say, let's just say it's 1,200 feet, so 1,200 square feet. That's 600 per floor. Uh, so including the basement, you're talking about 1,800 square feet. Got it. Okay. And, uh, but we are able to, to uh, create five bedrooms altogether in this house. Um, so after, so I was in it for around, uh, you know, let's just say 760,000. Okay. That's how much I'm in it for. That's the, the acquisition plus the renovation plus other Mickey Mouse stuff. And, uh, the ARV after repair value in that neighborhood is around 900,000. Okay. So it's like a $900,000 area. And uh, we refinanced it after the rehab was done. And, uh, you know, I was in it for 760. I was able to get a new loan for 700. So I wasn't able to pull all my money out. I pulled most of it out. Okay, on the refi. Um, and uh, the, it was a 700K, a 6.5% interest rate. Okay, and uh, we got a commercial loan, so it was amortized over 25 years as opposed to 30 years. And the principal and interest is 4,861. Okay, so that's uh, 700k at uh, six and a half uh, interest rate over 25 years. It works out to around that's the principal and interest now is about 4,861, almost 5,000. Okay, it's 4861. Anyway. Insurance is around two thousand dollars a year, which works out to about one hundred and sixty-seven a month. Taxes about forty-five hundred a year, which is about three seventy-five a month. So uh, the annual taxes and insurance is sixty-five hundred, which breaks it then, which works out to five forty-two per month. So TI is five four two. Okay, so far. So PI TI is 4861 plus 542 which is 5403 okay the rent uh is 5462 so i'm uh, this, this is just barely wow. break even <laughs> okay uh so what's it called uh so as i said the interest rates have gone it's the interest rates that's, that's what really as interest rates go up the margins get real real tight uh so uh, you know on day one i'm breaking even uh i got two hundred thousand dollars worth of equity on day one it's not bad and uh what's it called uh uh what else can i say about this uh i got new systems new everything in the house so your repair cost your capex cost is going to be quite low and this is a an appreciation play Mm -hmm. As you can see, this is not a cash flow play because it's only fifty bucks. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I've got about seventy sixty thousand dollars in it. I wasn't able to take all my money out, so I had to keep some money in. But again, the idea is to this is a long term play. Uh, in this, in give it another five years, that'll be a one point two million dollar neighborhood easily. Uh, and so, uh, so the idea is that I'm, 
I don't want to wait five years and regret not mm -hmm. buying in this neighborhood when it was cheap. <laughs> or even when it was expensive. They're like, how on earth would you, well, why would you pay for that, Dr. Joe, right? That's, just, that's probably what some of our listeners or our audience's family might even be saying. No, don't buy that. You're going to get ripped off. But we just talked about how we just created $200,000 of equity in a transaction by forcing the appreciation in the property. And if you guys look, think really think about it, right? $50 of cash flow might not sound like a lot to you, but you forget to look at the other piece of the equation, which is all the wealth that you just created by buying that property. And now you have an asset that's being paid down by Section 8 rents that's going to be paid on time every single month. And someone's yeah. the government's kind of like buying you a property uh, and financing it for you, if you think about it that way. So yeah. I don't want to lose sight of that. And this was a deal, doctor, you just got last year. So interest were crazy. So you could still get deals. And the, uh, the here's the crazy thing is that the uh, the rent is a uh, five four six two. Uh, the tenant's portion is one hundred and fifty nine dollars. Say that one more time, just so the people tenant, catch that. The tenant's portion of the five four six two rent is one hundred and fifty nine dollars, which means that every month. I mean, let's keep it round numbers. I'm getting $5,300 from the housing authority. Okay. And $159 from the tenant. Wow. So whether the tenant pays me or not is almost irrelevant because that $5,300 is going to hit my account every month, come what may. As long as that tenant's in that house, I'm getting that 5300 bucks. Okay. And the tenant is living in, a, I mean, how long, let me ask, let me throw it at you. If you were living in a $900,000 neighborhood and your rent was 150 bucks, how long will you stay there? I would stay forever. This Just is like not rocket said, science. Joe. This is not rocket science, Kent. <laughs> Dr. Joe, I mean, this is not only are you changing the lives of that family by putting them in an area where they normally cannot afford to live, but now their kids can thrive in that area because... Look, there it it it's very hard to find another location that like my mom's I was thinking back to my mom's apartment. She's right in the heart of downtown Boston and she can walk to Chinatown in three blocks, buy all her groceries, talk to all her friends. When any of the surrounding market rate property is like three, four thousand dollars. And she's paying like a thousand dollars right now. So it's it's life changing, and then it also helps dispel the myth of you guys. Like, think about why would a person want to lose that voucher? Why on earth would they want to trash your home after they just, like I told you, San Diego's twelve to fifteen years? Do I really want to wait twelve to fifteen years and throw it all away by trashing the home? I don't well, think so. I don't want to say yes and no. It depends mm. on the tenant. Yeah, some people, this is gonna some be people get it, okay, and some people unfortunately don't get it. Okay, they don't see, they don't understand the opportunity that they have. They're not, it's just like when you, I don't know, when you were a teenager, if your parents gave you a car when you're a teenager, or <laughs> gave you a credit card, you're not mature enough to understand, uh, you know, how to handle that, you know, and, uh, but after a while, you, you know, you grow and you know the power of having a car. I can go from A to B. You know, it's not just for hanging out with my, my buddies and, and, and doing wheelies down the street or, or, or you know, driving down the highway for 100, 150, 150 miles an hour. I mean, you know, you're mature enough to know 
you know, if I take care of this car, it's gonna, <laughs> you know, so it's the same thing with a voucher holder. Uh, and that's why I say not all voucher holders are tier one tenants. They're not. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, a tier one tenant will understand what gift you've given them, what opportunity you've provided them. They get it. They are mm -hmm. eternally grateful. They will not let you down because they know this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Not everybody is of that mindset yet. They're not there yet. Okay. That's why you can't just mm. rent to any Section 8 tenant. Mm. Okay. Because if you do, you may rent to somebody who just doesn't get it. They're not ready yet. They're going to trash your house just as much as, you know, th they can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Airbnb guests can trash your home anytime when they yeah. check in. So, so, so it's not as simple as well. Let's just rent to a Section Eight tenant. No, 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 not at all. Point. You Great got point. to make sure you get the right tenant, which means you got to screen very, very thoroughly, and uh, that's a whole other discussion. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, let's get into that right now, Doctor Joe, because I think this is important. How long is this podcast for? <laughs> oh, I got you for a little bit more time. I knew, I knew you would drop so many more gems, Doctor Joe. But what? How do you screen for the best tenants? If you have like the top three tips that you recommend someone to implement in their screening process, how do you figure out whether or not they're going to be good tenants if they were to rent out their property? Well, everybody has a history. Okay. You have a history. I have a history. We all have a history. Your job as a landlord is to understand that history. Okay. And if you don't understand that, or if you don't take the time to understand that history, then you are setting yourself up. Okay. So screening is the make or break. It's the make or break. If you, if you do this wrong, you are dead. You won't even get beyond go. Um, you know, that's the, that's the key thing about this. So what do I do? Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm okay. So, um, I'll give you some nuggets. One is obviously I call the current landlord. But I also, but you don't, you don't know what the current landlord, if they have a hidden agenda, you know, they could be a tenant from hell and, uh, they say, Oh, this person's great. Oh, you know, they're so good. I, I'll, you know, I'll help, I'll help them move tonight. If you want, <laughs> 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 they're that good, you know? <laughs> so, you know, they may have their own hidden agenda, but the previous tenant, sorry, the previous landlord, uh, they could tell you the real deal because they got rid of them. And so I usually like to call the previous landlord, make sure you do that. I like to do an eviction search to, uh, to see if they've been evicted, uh, more so than the credit, a credit check is important, obviously. Uh, but most voucher holders, my finding, I'm finding they have bad credit. Uh, so credit is not that really important to me, but eviction history is very important. Have they been evicted before? Uh, but the other thing which I do, which a lot of people don't do is I go to the person's home. Uh, to see how they keep their per how they keep their home today, uh, because what I found is how they keep their house today is how your house is going to be in three months, guaranteed. Okay, it's not you, you're not going to know that by what kind of job they have, what's their credit score, what kind of car they drive, what kind of school they go to. That's got nothing to do with how they keep their home. Nothing. Uh, if you want to know how your home is going to be, you go to their home. And, uh, very, very few people do that. I do. I require that. Uh, and you're going to say, well, 
what if they say you can't come to my home? You know, you know, you know, who are you to come to my? I mean, okay, that's fine. Uh, but I have a house that they want, and uh, if they have to jump through hoops to get it, they will. And uh, and that's the thing is the tier one tenants, they're proud of their home. You want to come to my mm -hmm. house? Sure, let's go. Mm, I keep my house just point. like this. You know, uh, you know, they're not intimidated by you, by by all these things. In fact, they are happy that you are different. Mm -hmm. You know, that you are, you know, when you go to their home, it gives them an opportunity to, because they're proud of their homes. And they're happy to be able to show you what kind of person they are and what kind of family that they are and uh, and so on. So, that, you know, I've, that's what I do. Very, very few landlords do that. And I don't understand why, but, uh, but, but, but the screening is so important that you have to make sure you take the time and effort to do it. Yeah. And I think that's like probably the biggest nugget I learned from you, Dr. Joe was like, Hey, it, will this person be wanting to share their, their current home and the condition of their home to prove that not only do they deserve it, but they're also proud of living in a home. Then they'll take pride in your property when they're living in your property as a resident. So, I do have one more question for you. Well, two more questions. I promise it'll be quick. What's your take on increasing rents now? Because with how high rents have gone up in the past couple of months, we had some listeners reach out like, hey, how's Dr. Joe navigating all of these rent increases, the application of rent increases? Do you ever get into conflict or debate with the housing authority? Like, hey, this is what I need to increase my rent to, et cetera. Like, what sort of nuggets do you have there on yeah. terms of how do you deal with the housing authority for right. asking for rent increases yeah so it's going to depend on the local uh housing authority uh whether they allow rent increases if so how much you can get so um you know and, and this is where relationships uh, with the housing authority i think is important because you know if you have relationships there then they'll tell you okay then we're, we're, we're allowing rent increases. We're not allowing rent increases. This is how much we're going by. And uh, what I want to know is what criteria do you use to determine whether you're going to approve a rent increase or not? Okay. That's what I want to know. And that's, that's a conversation. If you have relationships with people inside, they'll tell you that. That's not something that you get on the website usually. Uh, and that's why it's so important to have relationships inside the housing authority, uh, because they can give you information about, okay, then look, we base our rent increases on the following things, one, two, three. Okay. And then they'll tell you what those one, two, three are. I say, well, okay, then what if I want a rent increase slightly more than that? What's going to happen? Well, you know, if you want to get that the chances are you're probably gonna you're probably gonna get denied however <laughs> this is the key however <laughs> if you do the following <laughs> you'll increase the chances of getting approved you see what i'm saying uh so the standard line is you're not going to get it however there are exceptions i want to know what those exceptions are okay and therefore i make sure that if i'm going to submit a uh, rent increase I'm going to increase the chances of me getting approved. Okay. Uh, so it goes back down to, you know, again, it, it, it depends by how, I mean, I don't want to generalize it all because it could be different from one housing authority to another, 
But I think it may be worthwhile for people to invest in developing some relationships inside the, the organization. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely yeah. agree there because in California, I went to my housing authority and I said, hey, why well, get extra rent for putting in solar in my property, right? It's kind of things like that that you never know whether or not to take that into consideration. For me, I got to know. So I was like, all right, well, does it make sense for me to invest in a solar system? Because there's no return on that investment. Even though my intention are still good and pure, it doesn't necessarily mean that I can keep this sustainable if I try to put in 20 solar panels for every single property that I have. So I think you have to invest in those relationships. And just like Dr. Joe said, you gotta gotta build those relationships and spend the time so you'd be successful, not only in your local housing authority, but also with your contractors and your architects and et cetera. Um, so Dr. Joe, this is what the one question that I ask every guest on the podcast. And that is, why do you think affordable housing, particularly the lack of supply, is so hard to solve for? And I don't know, you think any solutions? Can you think of any solutions that we should be focusing on in this generation? Uh, here's one thing I've realized is, you know, I can't change the world. <laughs> There's certain things which, you know, these are macroeconomic uh, supply and demand things, which I can't solve that problem. There are people who get paid to solve. That's the mayor's problem. Uh, it's not my problem. Uh, but what I can do is to do what I can to solve the problem within my sphere of influence. Okay. So I can buy houses and I'll buy houses. I, I, I want to provide opportunities for families to live in good houses and good areas and, and create opportunities for their children. That's something which I can do it within my, you know, so, uh, so I do that. I buy these houses. I, you know, I mean, I spoke, I think I, I told you a story where, just by the fact that some of my tenants have lived in my homes, kids have gone to college because they've been to better schools and been in better neighborhoods. That would not have happened uh, if they weren't there. You know, so you can change the trajectory of, of a family's life. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the things that I can do. So all I can do is what I can do. And, uh, you know, and to encourage other people to replicate what I'm doing, you know, by sharing, you know, like what we're doing today, sharing with you nuggets, tips, experiences. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not shy about sharing. I mean, I'm not one of those people of KG. No, I want you to do what I do. It's good. It's a good business. You can make money, but also you can do a lot of good. And, uh, and that's what I, that's, that's where I am now. If you know, I'm buying, I'm still buying, but I'm trying to encourage more people to replicate what I'm doing. So hopefully, you know, if, if, if a tenant comes to me, if two tenants come to me and I have to choose one of them, I can say, I'm sorry, but Hey, give, give, Ken, give, give uh, Ken a call. He's got a house. You know, and uh, he's a good landlord. He does the same thing that I do. So I, I can do that. I can encourage people like you, Kent, to, to replicate what I'm doing, uh, encourage and motivate people on this podcast to do what I'm doing. And so hopefully we can make a difference to solve the problem, you know, one person at a time. And Dr. Joe, th again, I can't thank you for being the inspiration for my affordable housing investment journey. Um, I created this podcast because I want to bring people on like yourself to share that wisdom with the world. And so people can decide how they want to get involved in affordable housing. They can either be a single 
mom a single family mom and pop landlord or they could be a ground up construction developer sure. for apartment buildings or they could just be a private money lender in this space and i think when we when we share the successes of all the different avenues across the spectrum how you can get involved in affordable housing i think this is probably one of the best ways to make an impact on the lack of affordable housing supply and I am just so grateful again for you coming onto the podcast and sharing all these nuggets of wisdom because this is exactly what we need. We need to share with the world that there are good people out there that want to make an impact, that want to help people, that we're not all money-hungry landlords. We sincerely have a kind heart and we want to make a difference. So Dr. Joe, this has been a, a pleasure. I can't thank you enough. Hopefully I'll have the opportunity to have you come back onto the podcast again. Sure. But um, hey, for the audience that wants to get in touch with you, how do they get in touch with you, Dr. Joe? And how can they learn more from you? Okay. Uh, a couple of ways. Uh, one is every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, I have a, what I call a Wealth Wednesday uh, on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel uh, mm -hmm. and also on um, Facebook Live. Uh, so that's free. I usually cover a topic of interest today. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, tomorrow, sorry. Uh, or this week, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, I got uh, one of the books, one of the best time books I've ever read, real estate books, is The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. So I'm going to do a deep dive on uh, on that book, uh, the next live stream. I, I usually cover uh, different aspects of uh, real estate investing. I've been doing that for a couple of years. Check that out, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on uh, YouTube or, in, uh, or Facebook. Um, I have, if you join my, uh, what's it called, mailing list. Uh, you can go to my website, Joe at Joe Asamoah, Joe at Joe Asamoah.com. Uh, and you can add it to my mailing list. And we get, I usually send out an email every week, uh, newsletter. Uh, what else? You can reach me. I'm, if, for those people who are serious, uh, you know, I, I, you can get, you can hop on the phone with me for 15 minutes and uh, just go to my Instagram. Uh, this is at dr. Uh, Joe Asamoah at Dr. Yeah, well, Joe Asamoah. Okay, at Dr. Joe. <laughs> so uh, go to my Instagram, and uh, and then you can uh, what's it called? Shoot me a DM, and maybe we can do a fifteen-minute uh, one-on-one. We can do that. So if th that's that's for, uh, that's for only people who are serious, uh, because my time is important. Uh, but I want to help people. It's free. I'm not going to charge you anything. And uh, if you're in the DC area next Saturday. Uh, October the 7th, I'm going to do an event. We're going to focus on landlording. We're going to do a deep dive on landlord at one of my properties. So if you want to see one of my properties, uh, it's going to be, we have the event at my property in Washington, D.C. So if you're in the D.C. area, uh, by all means, uh, you know, feel free to. But, but yeah, just uh, join me on Instagram and uh, or, uh, or shoot me an email. At Joe at joeasimo.com, Joe at joeasimo.com. I'm not giving you a lot of stuff here, but uh, no, but it's that's... good. I mean, you're Dr. Jo at so D R J O E A S A M O A H on Instagram. I want to make sure yes. people see that. Um, because sometimes I don't want them to get scammed by all these fake accounts, uh, out there. So, Dr. Joe, this has been a pleasure. Thank you, thank you so much again for coming on to the podcast. I can't wait to have you come on. I'll make sure all the all the links and all the events that you just talked about are in the show notes. But thank you, man. Really appreciate the time, sir. No problem, Ken. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor, and thank you very much. If I can uh, help your your you know your listeners, I'll be more than happy to do so. Thank you, and we're out. <laughs>